You know, sometimes you're out somewhere, you're driving around, or you've got something going, and, and, uh, and you, you've got a, a kind of a situation, and you don't know where to turn, and so you've got to ask a question. And, and so where do you go? Where do you go if you need something vital and you need it fast? Well, um, a lot of us turn to Siri, right? <laughs> you know, like if you need a restaurant, you need a cup of coffee, you know, you need something desperate, it's great to turn to Siri. Isn't it an amazing little tool? You know, and so sometimes we go to Siri for, for those kinds of things. If you need a hospital, if you need something where you just, it, it's amazing the information that you get off of Siri. But then sometimes when you've got free time, you think, hey, I'm just going to goof around a little bit with Siri. Have you ever done that before? And you kind of ask Siri some weird questions. So, you know, let's, I thought it'd be fun to try this morning just a few questions to Siri. Like if you ask, for example, Siri, what is the best phone? The one you're holding. Okay. <laughs> That's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, Siri, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh-oh. What came first, the chicken or the egg? I checked their calendars. They both have the same birthday. Oh. <laughs> this is weird. Okay. Siri, how old am I? You'll need to unlock your iPhone first. Oh. Okay. Let's do that. I don't know your age. Oh, said I don't know my age. Well, how do I look for the age I am? You really turn heads, at least among the subset of galactic species that have heads. All right. Siri, what's most important to God? Interesting question, Larry. Okay, so I guess with that, why don't we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 and see what's most important to God. You'll find that on page 1535 in that book rack Bible. Maybe you grabbed an outline on your way in or perhaps You've opened your app, and there's an outline there. You can take notes right in your phone or your device this morning. We like asking questions. Sometimes, you know, maybe you're one of those people that when you were in a class, every time there was an opportunity to ask a question, you did. <laughs> and uh, if you were like me, I was afraid to ask questions. Uh, but then there's those people that like to ask questions to sort of trick you, you know, say something to get you in trouble, uh, if you've been following along in our series, uh, the last few weeks we've been looking at questions that the religious leaders have been asking Jesus, and they're not sincere questions. They're questions that are really, in a very real way, to trick Jesus into saying something to get him in trouble. I can put this down now. To get him in trouble with, uh, with the people that he's speaking to. And, and a lot of times we meet people like this in the world, and today the text is going to show us some really powerful things about people and about questions that really have an agenda behind them. But the beautiful thing about this today is that we're going to unfold some powerful truth that really is life transformational. And if you're sitting here today, you don't have a relationship with Christ, or you're looking into what it means to have a relationship with Christ, you have landed on probably the best day in the world to hear what Jesus says about what matters most to God. And this is going to be great. So let's read the text. We begin in verse 34 of chapter 22 of Matthew. And here's how it starts. 
hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the, great, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All right, so here was this lawyer asking this question. And right off the top, if you're taking notes, what I want us to understand about this text today is that sometimes the questions that come to us about spiritual things are merely a veiled attempt to discredit Jesus or our faith in him. Sometimes that's the way questions are. Questions are really not all that sincere. They're about testing. They're about challenging something that we uh, believe in our hearts. Um, In the context, as I said a minute ago, there's been some questions that have come to Jesus. Uh, Back in chapter 21, we learned uh, that they were asking Jesus about where he got his authority. And so he answers with a question himself, and they don't know how to answer the question, so they, they go away. Then another group steps up and asks about whether they should pay taxes to Caesar or not. And, and so Jesus dealt with that question, and that was also a test. And then last week, we looked at the question of uh, resurrection and marriage. What about marriage in the afterlife, and what is that all about? And of course, that was another test. And Jesus, once again, answers in such a way that he puts everybody sort of to silence. And here we have another one, this, this one that steps up, this young man, this expert in the law, stepping out from the group that had gotten together that poses a question uh, to Jesus about which command is the greatest. Now, remember, last week we left off with the Sadducees, and the Sadducees uh, were stumped with what Jesus had to say. Jesus silenced them in their question. And so this is now, again, one of the Pharisees Uh, So these two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees that did not get along were sort of going at it in an attempt to get Jesus to say something that would get him in trouble. Rabbis in Jesus' day had long debated the issue of which command was most important. Uh, There are over 600, to be exact, there are 613 commands in, in the Old Testament, and I dare you to find each and every one of those. 613 commands. And there was often the question, a debate in theological circles about which ones were the heavy ones, which one were the light ones, and which one, if we possibly could, come up with the most important of all. And so when this lawyer, this expert in the law, steps out to challenge Jesus, it may have been more out of trivializing that he was asking this question. This was a common question that was batted around in many synagogues and all of the rabbinical schools. This was something that was very common. It, it, was, it could have been even playful, but we know that this was a test because it says right in the text that he was testing Jesus with this question. And possibly Jesus would say something that would get him in trouble with some kind of group. Like we've been talking over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Danny been doing just a great job with this whole issue of the politic of our day. And asking questions that when you answer, you're bound to put yourself in a position where, where you're in trouble with some group or another. And this is what perhaps the Pharisee had in his mind. Which is the most important command? What is the thing that God cares about most? Which is the critical issue to God? And, and so Jesus answers this question. But before we get to the, the answer, I want to just point out that there's nothing new about people looking for ways to discredit Jesus. 
This happens all the time in all kinds of settings and places. Uh, we see this in several places in the New Testament. If you're in the book of Matthew, you can just go back a few chapters and see this in chapter 12, verse 2, chapter 15, verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1, where the religious leaders are testing. They're coming after Jesus to sort of uh, uh, to put him in a place of compromise. We see this with the, in John chapter 9 with the healing of the blind man and, and the interrogation that happens between the religious leaders and the blind man. And what is being said about who Jesus is and what he does. In the book of Acts, we've got uh, Peter and John, and they do this amazing miracle, and they're, they're scourged, they're told to stop speaking about Jesus, and they're sort of put out on the mat, and, and you kind of see this, this, the questioning that's going on is all about discrediting Jesus or discrediting your faith in Jesus. And there's nothing new about this. This is all through the Bible. And we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, we have our own stories. We see this in our own lives too. I remember going to college. I went to the College of San Mateo. It was my first college out of high school. And I was thinking, okay, this will be a great experience. And so every class I had, I had humanities, I had, you know, I had English, I had history, I had anthropology, I had basic classes that were kind of going to move me into what I wanted to do as a firefighter, move into the fire academy there at College of San Mateo. And so I was taking the basic courses. And every single class I had, it seemed like within the first week, sometimes the first day of the class, the professor would bring up something about Christianity, and then he would ask a question, and it sounded like a naive sort of like, who's interested in talking about this? And I found myself raising my hand sheepishly, but raising my hand and answering the question, to which I was then ridiculed for being a follower of Jesus. If you are on a secular university campus, you are likely to go through a real uh, rigorous experience if you're going to be an outspoken Christ follower there. And that's because there's nothing new about being ridiculed, about Christ being ridiculed, and about our faith being ridiculed. We somehow uh, need to become more used to this. Who hasn't had the experience, even in personal conversations, where someone will say to us, if God were so loving, why is there so much suffering in the world? Have you ever had that question? If God really loves me, why did he allow this or that to happen in my life? If God is so just, why does he let bad people get away with seemingly everything? If God is so powerful, why didn't he stop this when that happened? If God hears and answers prayer, why hasn't he heard my cry for this or that? If God owns everything, why are so many people without so much? I mean, the questions go on, and sometimes they're legitimate concerns that people have in their hearts, but often questions like that, people have already come to their conclusion, and they're asking us in a way to discredit Jesus or to discredit the faith that we have. Not really interested in truth, not really interested in the answer. But So this is where it comes down. This guy asks what could have been trivial, could have been something that just tried to get Jesus in trouble. But at the end of it, look at how Jesus responds. And this is verses 37 through 40, where I just simply want to say questions of this nature are sometimes the very means to boldly share the truth about what God has revealed to us. And here Jesus, he waits, he waits, he gives no time. He just jumps right into this, and he goes right to the book of Deuteronomy, which was uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This was known as the Shema, which in Hebrew means to hear. 
And this was something that every Jew repeated twice daily. It was the Shema. He would say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and we must love the Lord. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And this is what the Shema was. This is what every Jewish person would say twice a day. He would wake up saying it. He would go to bed saying it. This would be something that every person would quote. This was the most important thing. And Jesus, right here, just kind of comes out with this, which gives us an amazing picture as to really what is important to God. If you're taking notes, I want you to recognize that God wants above all else that we respond to his love. God wants above all else that we respond to his love. Now, God has created us with his capacity. I want you to write this down. We're going to take a minute to walk through it. It, but it takes a miracle of new life for this to really happen. You see, what God is really asking for, what God really wants, what is most important to God is that we respond to his love. He's given us the capacity. We've been created in his image. And though it takes a miracle for this to get started in our lives, when God opens the door for that to happen in our lives, this is what God wants. He wants there to be an, a, an absolute and complete and whole response of our lives to his love. And all of us, even as humans, we can relate to this. When we love someone, it's natural to want to be loved back, right? I mean, there's no hurt greater in human relationships to experience the unrequited, unreciprocated, unanswered love. And maybe as a husband or a wife, you've experienced that, where you've loved and you've not received love in return. Or maybe it's with your children. You've loved and suddenly, you know, they don't, they're not responding to your love the way they used to. Uh, we, as human beings, we love to have our love reciprocated. We love and we want to be loved back. This is a basic human need. And this is, this is so amazing when I think about it. It's so simple. God has created us, and the one thing he wants out of his creation is simply that we respond to his love. There's something beautiful about feeling that response. I mean, this trickles all the way down into why we choose certain pets to have, right? Right? I mean, now, now I get it. There are some people that, you know, are into pets that are not as responsive. Like, you know, if you like reptiles or, you know, birds or those kinds of, you know, mice, rats kinds of things. And I'm, I'm not going to debate whether those ever respond. But, but I, that's why, personally, I'm just, I'm a dog lover because dogs just seem to give back a, a special kind of love, don't they? You say, I know you're a cat lover. You think your cat... No, your cat, when your cat's rubbing up again, they're just saying, I'm hungry, I want to eat, okay? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. You know, the thing is, though, we, we, everything from pets we choose to relationships we're in, we, we, we tend to go where we sense that there's a response, and this is the beautiful thing about God. He, he wants us to... This is what's important to God, that we love Him back. Why? Because He has loved us first. He has loved us first. And our response to God, if you're taking notes, our response to God is to love Him back with every part of our being, verses 37 and 38. I find this interesting 
that the essential command here is to love God. Now, Jesus didn't say it's to serve God or to obey God or to confess God or even to worship God. He says, love God. God wants this incredible response to us. And some have done a lot to talk about you know, how mutually exclusive each of these terms are, heart, soul, and mind. Uh, and, and we could certainly argue the point, God wants us to love with our hearts, which is in Hebrew thought or in, in Old Testament literature, that would be the mind, the heart would ref, ref, reference the mind. Or we could say we should love God with our feelings, we should love God with our emotions, We should love God with our soul, our personality, the person that we are. We should love God with our soul. We should love God with our mind. There should be an intellectual response to God in love. Yes, all those things are true, but I think if you really study this text and and you look at the context of Deuteronomy 6 and the other places where in Luke chapter 10 and Mark chapter 12, I believe it is, where all of those gospels use this reference of loving God with heart, soul, and mind, and Luke and Mark include the word strength there. The idea is is that it would be an all-encompassing response. Every part of our life, nothing held back. No little compartments like the way many of us treat our relationship with God. Like we can love God when we come to church, but during the week at work, that's not really a venue where we would say we would love God. But God says here that the greatest commandment is to love him in every area of our life, through every area of our life, and and see that that becomes sort of an all-consuming part of us. We're too good at compartmentalizing our relationship with God. And yet Jesus says here, this is what's most important to God. He says to love him with all of our hearts. Now listen, I said up at the top that it takes a miracle for this to happen. It's impossible for that to happen without the work of God in a sinner's heart. He has to, listen, we've been created with the capacity to love him with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, but God must open the the pathway for his spirit to come in and make residence in our lives, and that happens when by faith, when by faith we confess that we're sinners and we need Jesus Christ to come in and and give us this life that he promises. And until that happens, listen, this the greatest commandment to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind is the reminder to us of the, of the greatest sin that we commit in life, which is simply if, if loving God is the greatest commandment, then not loving him is the greatest sin. And people sort of, you know, people will say, oh, I'm not, I'm not a sinner. I've never done anything bad, you know. But they're just living to consume everything for themselves Does not this command point to the depravity of our lives more clearly than any other of the commands? To love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to not love him with our heart, soul, strength, and mind is therefore the greatest sin. Make your list as you you will, and I would argue that the greatest sin is not any of the things that you might write on that list. The greatest sin is simply to avoid your responding to a loving God. But here's the the hitch in all this is that... You know, if you're unsaved, you can't obey this commandment. You don't have any power to obey this command. But here's the beautiful message of the gospel. This is the truth of the gospel. That when Christ comes in and lives in our lives, now we have the full capacity to do this. And we're going to spend the rest of our lives on earth experiencing the tension 
and making choices about choosing to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Because every day there's competition in our lives to do this. In fact, let's just go a little step further. Notice he says, Jesus includes something. He says, look at this. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus takes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 and he puts both those together. And Leviticus 19 is in its context. is about not seeking revenge or bearing a grudge on your neighbor. And here he uses this text to say that we love God with everything in our being and, and, and what's connected to that is loving others as we love ourselves. Now here's what we've done in modern evangelicalism and, and in the pop culture that we're living in. We look at the second commandment as all about we need to learn how to love ourselves. <laughs> I mean, have you heard that? This is modern psychology. You know, the problem with all of us is that we don't love ourselves enough. And if we, if we love our, that what Jesus is getting at here is that we, we need to turn that upside down and we need to love ourselves more so that we can love others adequately. That's not what Jesus is saying. I would suggest to you that Jesus is simply saying, in the simplest way, he's saying, look, the way you fuss about yourself, you need to start fussing about others. You already have a love for yourself. You are looking at a number one, you know, caregiver of Larry Vold is Larry Vold, you know. I mean, seriously, I, I am, I, I'm very conscious about things in my life that need help. You know, I look in the mirror a lot. You know, am I okay before I go out into public, you know? I've got these weird idiosyncrasies. I'm afraid to say too many of them right now because I'm self-conscious. But there are things, you know, I'm conscious about. So in my hygiene and things that I care I'm very conscious about Larry Vold. I'm conscious that I wear clothes when I go. I'm conscious about I, I want a place to sleep at night. I'm very concerned about those things. Am I concerned about others the way I'm concerned about myself? Am I concerned about other people's hygiene, other people's clothing, other people's shelter? The reality is I'm not as concerned about others as I am about myself because I already love myself. And Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, the second is just like it. You can't love others until you love God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you can't love others until you start looking at the way you care for yourself and you start caring for others that way. Now, granted, and I want to be clear, some people have emotional or mental problems that cause them to hate or damage themselves in some way. And that, those folks need help in, in understanding how to love yourself, love themselves. I understand that. But the real problem of our lives is not that. The real problem is, is we are so good at taking care of our own needs. Our response to God and his love is to love others the way we love ourselves. That's it. And this is, what, this is what this text is about. Now, this is at the core of 1 John 4, 9-12 through 12, that says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God loves in, lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 
I mean, this is the fallacy of all truism apart from the foundation of God's love and loving him in return. Apart from the anchor of God's love in our hearts is merely a veiled disguise of loving ourselves, feeling better about ourselves when we do kind and loving things to others. And the Bible says, we just read, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loves us. And by the way, this is a beautiful thing. This is the beauty of Christian love, reaching out to the poor, reaching out to the needy, compassion and care. We love because he first loved us. And we're entering into a season where we get to practice those things in a beautiful way. Operation Christmas Child, great opportunity. Uh, we're going to be hearing about cross streets in a few weeks and how we can do this through the season of the holidays, how we can put love and care on those in our community that need a special touch. It's amazing to me that this is where it really comes down. Now, let's go down to verse 40 and let's wrap it up with this one last principle here. And what I find in verse 40, Jesus says something extraordinary. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What characterizes a true relationship with God is not religious adherence to commands and rituals, but a heart engaged with God and transformed by love. It's a curious expression. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Some have suggested that what Jesus is saying here is that these are the only things that matter to to God. These are the only, you can take all the other commands of Scripture and throw them out. You don't need them. That's not what Jesus is saying. If if that's what he was saying, then that would contradict what he says in Matthew 5, where he says that, uh, that the Son of Man has not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen will be by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So if that's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, what is he saying here that on these two commandments all the law and the prophet hang? What he's saying is that apart from truly loving God with all of our being and loving others in a way that shows the way we love ourselves, we're just merely adhering to rules and rituals, which is nothing more than religion, and we do not have a true relationship with the living God. Now, this this concerns me because I find more and more people that I meet Consider us, consider our ministry, consider the church in general, not necessarily our church, but the church in general, as not people that love, but people that are, that look askance at people that are not like us, that don't look like us physically, that don't vote like us, that don't have beliefs like us, and, and we're not known for love. We, we once, as a church, in the history of the church, were known for our love, but we really have sort of lost that mantle. We're not known for love. I sat with somebody recently who's, who's a, a popular activist in our community uh, for the LGBT movement. And, uh, you know, writes extensively. He's in the newspaper a lot. And he's, he's wanted to meet with me. And I, I offered to meet with him a while back uh, out of friendship and love. I said, let's, yeah, let's meet. Let's get to know each other. I would like to do that. Well, he was not as interested in that because he wanted an agenda meeting. And so... I said, I'm not really interested in agenda. 
I'll give friendship and love. Anyway, we finally had a meeting. And, and you know, this is what broke my heart in this meeting. You know, he, he contends that we hate homosexuals <laughs> because we have ministries that help people who have family members who are homosexual, and we pray for each other, and we pray for how God might step in and move, and how do we speak the language of love to family members that go different directions in their lives, sexually or otherwise. And in that meeting, I had the opportunity to talk to him about the fact that our mission is not against homosexuality. Our mission is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom that he gives in forgiveness of sins, which I reminded him in that meeting that I am as much a sinner as anyone else in our community. But I have been forgiven of my sin. And that because we treat sin the way God treats sin, we see sin as that which destroys our lives And so we are against all sin. Homosexuality is a sin. It's not the biggest sin. It's just a sin. Uh, Lying is a sin. Gluttony is a sin. Living with your boyfriend or girlfriend is sinful if if you're not married to that person. You know, and so often in the church, this is what gets so sticky about all this stuff, is that we tend to pick out the sins that we don't like and we, we go after those things or we make statements about those things. But here's, here's what I wanted to bring to us this morning. This is an intimate conversation, but I said, you know, I believe that any person, no matter what their background, could come into our church and experience love and acceptance and care no matter who they are. And if they're looking to understand who Christ is, they will experience the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is His power that can redeem their hearts, forgive their sins, and give them new life. And I said, any person can feel totally comfortable if they are seeking a relationship with God. Yes, they can come. Anybody can come. And if that's you this morning, I, I hope we pass the test. Because the person that was sitting next to me in that meeting did not agree that we would pass that test. That we are judges and that we are haters. And I thought of this text. I thought, are we? Are we haters or are we lovers? Now watch this. You can come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. This is the problem. Because we want, we want to say, accept my sin... And don't let me have to deal with my sin. And we're really good in the church at that too. Because there are folks sitting in our church today that have sin in their life. And friends that know Christ know about that sin. And we're not saying anything. We're not lovingly approaching. We're not saying, hey, you know, how can I help? Or even saying, have you recognized this in your life? We we need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, people. To be able to lovingly confront those who name the name of Christ of any sin that's in our lives. And that goes for me too. If you see sin in my life, you need to point it out. We need to have enough community in our lives where that becomes, doesn't have to be a public thing. But where people can speak into our lives in a beautiful way and say, hey, here's what I'm learning. Maybe this is something that will help you. We don't know the walk that somebody else has, but watch this. We can, we can continue to love people in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ and let Jesus do his work in their lives. And I hope, I just hope and pray that we as a church, we as a church will experience a, a, a growth stage of loving God with everything in our lives and loving our neighbor 
as we love ourselves. Now, keep in mind that all of this was a test. I don't think this young expert even anticipated that he would get this kind of answer. He was testing Jesus, and what came back from Jesus was a bold, radical statement about what it means to be a follower of Him, and what it means to the evidence of that comes into a life that is fully transformed. And I'm inviting us, all of us, to respond to Christ this morning in obeying His command to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's a huge order that can only be filled in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's, let's give each other a lot of room to work on this, and let's encourage and spur one another on, and let's look for opportunities to, to put to the test whether we really love people the way we say we love people, or are we trying to change them or modify them so that we can love them? I'm grateful to be a pastor in a church that I believe we're, we're working and we wrestle with that. And I believe that we do have a reputation of love. However, there are some people in our community and maybe some people will never see the side of love because, I, I don't even know why because, but our responsibility is to love God and love others. That's the challenge before us today. Now, if you have never opened your heart to Christ, yeah, God created you with a capacity, but until you confess your sin as a sinner, you need Christ in your life, that pathway doesn't open for you. And today, right here, you can open your life to Christ. You can confess your need for Him to forgive you of your sins and give you new life. And today, you can begin a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ right now, right now. And if you know Christ this morning, would you just take some time today before you start into your work week, or maybe if you start it today, before you get back into your busy life of, of duties and responsibilities, just ask yourself the question, is love seen in my life, or am I just going through a lot of rituals? Do I just come to church and wear the face, and then I go back into my community, and I judge people, and I reject people and I don't open my heart to people and I don't stand in the tension of people that are different from me. You know, we've got folks around here all week long. I met a gal in the lobby this past week, homeless, in her 20s, rugged life, just got out of the hospital, broke my heart. She's someone's daughter, put my arm on her. I said, could I pray with you? Helped her a little bit. Would you stick around? I'd like to talk to you more. She left. Do people experience love in this place? Do they walk out going, that is supernatural what happens up there? Or when they meet you at work or they know you in your neighborhood, that's, that's just supernatural. I don't get you. I, I can't even explain you. But there's something about you that I, I need to know more of. And what they see or who they see is Jesus Christ. I don't know. I'm hoping that we will be a church that demonstrates to a, a, a culture and to a society that is pretty much written off evangelical Christianity as a bunch of rules and behavior modifications. And they would see that we are a people on fire with the love of God.